to uh, the chapter we looked at this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Tonight we're going to look at verses 24 to 28. 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 24. Let's, let's read back. Let's read back at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man came, has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things into subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. This morning we looked at uh, the uh, resurrection and the, the, the difference that the resurrection makes. Uh, and um, Paul it was uh, adamant of the fact that the, of the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection, and flowing from that, which the Corinthians had been denying, the general resurrection of the world, and particularly God's people in, in, in a resurrection unto life. And uh, that was important for us to see. And, uh, but Paul now projects forward into the future. Uh, that interval between the resurrection of Jesus, and the general resurrection of the world. Now that is, it's really astounding for us to think about, isn't it? Won't that be an amazing thing? I, I want you to think about that for a moment. When the graves, the earth and the sea will give up their dead, we will see that. It would have been awesome to be at the grave of Lazarus, to see Lazarus come out after four days. Or to see the widow of Nain's son uh, raised from the dead. Or that little girl or many other people that Jesus raised. That is not described for us. But what an awesome thing it will be. To be a part of the general resurrection. And if things keep going the way they are, we will be those who sleep in the grave. <laughs> uh, it may come in our lifetime, we don't know. But we have had 2,000 years between us and Jesus. So it looks more likely that we ourselves will be in the graves when, when uh, uh, Jesus returns. But we will see it. We will be part of all of that. And it will be awesome to behold. But in the meantime, it's important for us to understand what's going on. You remember in the life of Abraham, God spoke to Abraham and then it was about 25 years later that there was nothing. Leave your home and go to Canaan. He did it. He went. And there was a, a whole, there were years and years, intervals there, 
where God didn't say a word to Abraham. And then Abraham and Sarah basically said, well, we've got to, take, we've got to start taking things in our own hands. And because there was this gap, they, they assumed that God had forgotten them. And we see the painful results of that when they start to take things into their own hands. As Sarah gives Hagar to a Abraham. Ishmael is born and all sorts of bitterness and anger and uh, comes into the situation and it's, it's, it's a real disaster. So what we do in the interval and how we handle the interval is of great importance. We see the resurrection of Jesus. We say, well, there was lots going on there. And we see, we can, we can actually see a buzz of activity in the book of Acts. And you can, you can see tangibly with your eyes, yeah, there's lots going on here. We can project to the end. And when Jesus comes back and say, yeah, that'll be awesome to, to be a part of that. What about in the meantime? Is there anything going on? What's happening in the meantime? And so Paul uh, says so. Uh, he, he describes what's going on between the first resurrection of Jesus and the second general resurrection of all believers. Then comes the end. So he's there's a long gap there between verses 23 and 24. Jesus is the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So I shouldn't say between 23 and 24. Even from the first part of 23 to the second part of 23. You've got a gap of about you know, thousands of years, however many years still uh, are left to go. Jesus, the first fruits, well, that happened 2,000 years ago, but uh, his coming, we don't know when that'll be. It could be many thousands of years from now. We don't know. Now, a lot of the people speculate. They want to be sure. People can't People aren't satisfied with just being happy with the status quo. They want to write the book. They want, to make, they want to be the ones to set the date. Uh, but he, we're not told. And so, there is this huge gap in the middle. But what is going on is something extraordinary. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples, greater things you shall do because I go to the Father. So it's not that there's nothing going on much is going on, isn't there? Worldwide evangelism is going on. In that interval between Jesus' first coming and second coming, there are periods of national revival, awakenings, just as there was in this church. As I uh, described, there was this, this building full of uh, uh, over a thousand people. And then uh, uh, another... Um, 500 outside, it was estimated. That's mind-boggling. God was at work. And God is at work. He is at work in ways that we can't really uh, understand and see sometimes. That's why he, is say, he says here, Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and power and authority. And we're going to come back to that. For He must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. What's going on? He must reign. He is reigning now. We're not waiting for Jesus to come back before he starts the 
uh, the reign of the kingdom. That's what Christmas is all about. For unto you was born in the city of David a Savior was Christ the Lord. God will give him the kingdom of his father David. Acts 2, uh, which uh, Tim read for us, Peter goes to great lengths to describe what is going on. And what is going on is that God has raised Jesus up and seated him on the throne of David. And that's why they see all these miracles going on. That's why they hear the gospel in their own language. That's why they see powerful things happening. Signs and wonders. It's because the Lord is at the right hand of the Father. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know that God has made uh, both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. So there, it's un Paul or Peter there is unequivocal in describing for us the current reign, the present reign of the Son. The Father has given the Son the right to reign and to complete the plan of redemption. In many ways, Jesus said it is finished on the cross, but there was a great deal of work to begin, to, to finish. That's how the book of Acts actually starts, doesn't it? Um, he says there in chapter 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up after he had given command through the Holy Spirit. Notice that word, began. The cross was a stage in redemption. Pentecost was another stage in redemption. These are unrepeatable events. But now, the worldwide evangelism of the world is another event that is taking place. He must reign. Jesus is reigning today. And Paul here, of course, bases his teaching on, uh, uh, on, on Scripture. Um, he... Um, he, he, he is referring here, he's referencing Psalm 110. Uh, as he says there in verse 1, Then comes the end, we will deliver the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule, power, and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, Paul is intentionally choosing the language of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a stool for your feet. And so we see that in Psalm 110, verse 1. Until I make your enemies your footstool. That's why the, the disciples were so happy in Acts chapter 5, even after they were beaten for their faith, they were persecuted, and uh, they, they come back and they, they quote Psalm 2. What's going on? Well, is Jesus reigning? Well, why are they being beaten? Why are they being tortured? Why are they being persecuted? They could easily say, well, hmm, as some today, 
turn on the television, look at war, look at famine, look at disease, and say, Jesus is not reigning. But the disciples didn't go down that road. They didn't, they didn't throw in the towel simply because they were themselves beaten and persecuted. They're, they said, look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the nation, Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers who were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Their prayer had boldness because Jesus was reigning. He must reign. He must reign. And we cannot, as we survey our own lives, and see it all as being very random, say, well, why is this happening and that happening? Why are these going, things going on in my personal life? Or why did this person have to, be, have to die? Or why did I have to lose my job? Or why is the war going? Is Jesus really reigning? Well, these people were also going through a time of societal upheaval, personal upheaval, physical violence, and all the rest of it. And yet, it did not dampen their understanding of the reign of Jesus. But they boldly proclaimed it. They, they proclaimed this psalm. And that's why it's so good for us to sing the psalms that speak of the kingdom of God and speak of such a, bro a broad uh, 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 um, understanding of God's kingdom that the Psalms give us. And that's what they did. They took the Psalms and they ran with them. They let these words uh, interpret what was going on. He must reign. And Peter, therefore, in Acts 2, makes this natural reference to David because before their very eyes... Jesus was enthroned. That's an incredible thing. And Peter interprets, interprets it as such. That he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, that this Christ God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Wow. You see Paul saying it here in 1 Corinthians 15. You see it here Peter. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Peter, or Jesus himself, even quotes it as applying to himself. So it's pivotal for us to understand that, isn't it? And that when we sing it in church, as we've done tonight, we ought to be comforted and encouraged that Jesus is reigning. He must reign. He must reign. And He is subduing His enemies. Um, until He has put all His enemies under His feet. So as we move to the end, there will be this progress of Jesus putting 
all his enemies under his feet. And his return will be the completion of that. Peter says that Jesus has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being subject to him. His power and his reign is absolute. Psalm 2 again. He laughs at the kings of the earth who rebel against him. Psalm 37 says, The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. He must reign. He reigns by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. He reigns in the hearts of his people, subduing this, the enemy of our hearts. You see, you were an enemy of God at one time. You did not love God. But God came and reigned. He subdued your wayward heart. He brought your heart into subjection to Himself. He brought you to your knees. He changed your heart. He changed your life. So that though at one time you... you Turn God away. And we were enemies of God. We were not subject to His law. He came to reign and rule in our hearts. As He has done with tens of millions of people down through history. Does He have a, 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 a political office somewhere on earth? No. He's reigning by His Holy Spirit. And tonight and today, we pray in churches all over the world that the Spirit of God was Turning enemies into friends. Turning enemies into believers. Reigning by His Spirit. Subduing hearts and minds. I pray that today, even in our church, even this morning, that hearts were subdued. That enemies became friends of God. But this is what He does. Look at Acts chapter 2. When they heard this about the resurrection and the reign of Jesus, they cried out, Men and brethren, what must we do? Peter says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that day, 3,000 people were added unto the church. That's reigning, friends, isn't it? That's ruling. He must reign. And He is reigning. Isaiah 2 forecasts this day. He said, Many shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us His ways and we shall walk in His paths. He shall reign. So there is the present reign of Christ. He reigns in our lives. We're here tonight because He reigns. We seek to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Because it is God who is working in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. He is reigning. He is our King. That's how He is reigning, you see. When you choose to sacrifice your money for the kingdom of God rather than spend on yourself, when you choose to forgive rather than hold a grudge or bitterness, that's the King reigning in your life, overcoming the power of darkness in your life, overcoming bitterness and hate and division. When you reach out, rather than looking in, that's the kingdom of God. You're, you're, you're going up against the powers of darkness. 
you're taking on the armor of God and you're going up against prejudice, division, separate, all these things. Because He reigns. And we can leave all the other questions with Him about why this and why that and all sorts of things. Jesus said there will be always wars and rumors of wars until the end. But He is saying that that does not take away from the fact that He will reign and that He is reigning. What a wonderful thing for us to be able to say that about ourselves personally tonight. Can you say that Jesus reigns in your heart and life? That He is your Lord and your Savior? That the choices you make, every choice that you make is brought to the bar of His will? That you're saying, Lord, what would you have me to do in this situation? Because you, you reign in my life. I don't reign. I'm not the king of my own life. I'm not the guide of my own destiny. You are, Lord. So I bring it to your bar. I bring it to your... Uh, 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 to your uh, your wisdom. And I ask for your guidance. He shall reign. The last enemy, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so he speaks here of his ultimate victory until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Paul is enraptured, isn't he, here in this chapter with the the total victory of Jesus over death. Jesus' reign begins at the resurrection and it ends when all his enemies have been eliminated. These enemies, as he speaks of, are spiritual forces that rule, principalities and powers that we talked about in Ephesians, the enemies of sin and death and the grave, and he even speaks of death in that way. He, he mocks the great enemy. Verse 54, in the same chapter, when the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, that's us, then it shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? To all our enemies, the enemies that are arrayed against the church of God, when we will see perfect justice displayed in the earth, we, we, we grieve at what's going on in Ukraine. We grieve what's going on as we, many of us have grown up with wars. Korean War, the Vietnam War, the war in Afghanistan, and then the second war in Afghanistan, and, uh, and all of these different conflicts around the world that we've grown up with. The Rwandan slaughter. All of these things. And Paul says unequivocally, unequivocally here that he will uh, reign until he has put all his enemies under his what does that do then for our marching orders tonight what does that do for the way in which we look at life the things that we fear the people that we fear the situations that we fear he must reign he is my shepherd he is my friend he is my constant companion that's what he says in Psalm 27 the Lord is my light and my salvation 
whom, of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I fear? You see, this is David there in that psalm is logically working out the implications of the fact that the Lord is his light and salvation, that the Lord is reigning. And we are called to do the same when we sing that psalm, especially in the light of the gospel, especially in the light of the resurrection, and in the light of what Paul is saying here. And that is poetically described for us in Romans 8 as Paul uh, 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 um, catalogs all of those things that stand against us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. These too are things that stand against the people of God, which Jesus subdues. For your, uh, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I was at a funeral one time and somebody told me, asked me to read that uh, passage and preach on it. And they said, could you leave out that bit? I preached on it. I didn't preach on it. I, I, I referred to it in the sermon because what Paul is saying there is, look, even though we may be even sheep to the slaughter every day, it ought not to be a reason for us to doubt God's love and care for us because the greater, more magnificent question has been answered, who shall condemn? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We can even be sheep to the slaughter if need be. But yet in Him we are more than conquerors because all our enemies He has dominion over. And so there He goes on. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors than who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, rulers, things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He must reign until He has put all His enemies, and here are many of them, powers, authorities, life, death, anything that would come out against the people of God. That's why John was very selective in his miracles that Jesus performed because each miracle that he performs describes a different aspect of life. Whether it's time, distance, quality, and turning water into wine or quantity, feeding the 5,000, and then even ultimately the last miracle in John, the raising of Lazarus, his victory over death itself. And so Paul echoes that when he says he must reign over all his enemies, not only people and powers, but, but things like want, quality of life, lack of quality, time, all of these things Jesus is able to subdue. And even death itself is done in when Jesus calls Lazarus from the grave and when Jesus rises himself. But the last enemy, he says here, being death. This is abolished. And Paul, as I said, rejoices in that. He even mocks, oh, death. Imagine mocking death. Have you ever thought of mocking death? Paul does. Who would have? We, we, we might mock people. 
we might mock animals. But Paul mocks death. The great enemy, the great destroyer, as the Old Testament says, the grave which, whose appetite is never satisfied. It wants more and more and more. But Paul here, because of the death of Christ, he stands up and looks death in the face and says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? You're not so bad after all. Jesus has taken the sting and power away from you. And that's been broken by Jesus walking out of the grave. So in Revelation 1, we hear that the Lord holds the keys of hell and of death. And it's magnificent to hear how Paul describes that here. And how he personifies death and he holds death up to mockery. And it's that degree to which Jesus has won our salvation. And that he is now ruling and reigning. And that the fear of death for God's people is gone altogether. Tells us in Psalm 2 that the Lord will look at his enemies and laugh at them. That's what Paul's doing here. Because Paul has understood the full scope of what Jesus did on that cross. The great enemy, the last enemy, being death itself. As Paul is sitting there beside Jesus and he's writing, Oh death, oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? What wonderful things for us to think about and meditate upon to see the passion of Paul to see the his focus and because he wants us to see how complete the resurrection is and the present reign of Jesus because the father has given all things into his hands he has taken away the fear of death therefore in Hebrews 2 he says he has delivered all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong what slavery Many people are enslaved to their fear of death. But again, Jesus takes that away. You see that in the New Testament. The thief on the cross. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Stephen, Lord, into your hands I, I commit my spirit. The Apostle Paul who says... Uh, you know, there is now, therefore, a, a crown of righteousness is laid up for me in, in the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus will give to me. For me to live as Christ, but to die as gain. I'm going there. <laughs> you see, that? that's people who are not afraid to die. He's, he's taken the fear of death away. Old Simeon, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all people. He says, I'm not, I'm not afraid anymore. I hope that's the situation with yourself. That you're living knowing that Jesus has conquered death in the grave. And that though no one wants to die, I'm not saying you should be ch chomping at the bit, but I'm saying that when our time comes, that there's not a, a fearful foreboding of, of something that's beyond. We know that beyond is our 
Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, waiting with outstretched arms to welcome His people into His kingdom. We're, that's why we call it going home. This world, we're strangers in this world now. We're aliens in this world now. We're, when we die, we go home to be with the Lord. What wonderful language. And that when we die, we, die we, we sleep in the grave. Jesus, Jesus' death and resurrection was so transformative that the New Testament wasn't going to call it death anymore. They were just going to call it a sleep. Because it's only temporary. And those bodies which go down into the grave will one day arise. The, the perishable will put on imperishable. Jesus is the true King David. He is the first fruits from the dead, as he says here. First fruits in the Old Testament, when the harvest was done, they brought the first fruits in and waved them before the Lord, promising that the whole crop then would come in. Jesus then is the first fruits from the dead. As he talk, we talked about this morning, the idea of down payment. When the down payment goes down, it's, it's an earnest for the whole thing. I'm interested in the whole thing. Jesus is that for us. His resurrection from the dead is the first fruits of a global ingathering of people from all over the world. And then there is, lastly, the final consummation. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things into subjection under His feet. But when He says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that He has accepted who put all things into subjection under Him. That's, that, he means that the Father is not part of that all things that are under His feet. The final consummation is when Jesus has concluded world history in bringing people from all the continents of the world into the kingdom of God, those for whom He died, when death is destroyed and all enemies put under His feet, then the Son of God takes all that authority that has been given to Him and He turns it over to God the Father. And He says, Here I am and the children whom You have given Me. Here I am and the victory that I have won, that we have won. And so, what we are looking at is not an inferiority here. We're not looking at the inferiority of the Son to the Father. The Son of God is part of the Trinity, and He was equal in glory and power. But Paul is he's not speaking of the essential nature between the Father and the Son. He's speaking of the work that Christ has accomplished as Messiah, as the Son of God in the flesh. So that when after He has done all that work, in submission to the Father, you see, He goes and He obeys the Father. Here I am, send me. He goes. He goes to the cross. He rises from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father. The Father gives Him the gift of the Holy Spirit to give to the church. He gives Him the nations to rule and to reign. Jesus does that between the period of His resurrection and His second coming. That's what's going on now. He's ruling and reigning. So that after all of that is complete, 
It's as if He takes all that, turns everything over to the Father, gives all dominion and authority back into the hands of the Father that God might be all in all. Charles Hodge, a, a theologian, says the son of a king, he's describing here how is it possible that, that the son is subordinate here to the father, yet at the same time being equal with him. He says the son of a king may be equal, the equal of his father in every attribute of his nature, though officially inferior. You have a general or a major general, and you, you, they, they have different ranks, right? In an army, you have a general, you have a corporal. If you look at them on any given day, they look the same. The corporal may be even better built than the general. He may be stronger in all, in all, all his other features, but they are equal as human beings. But in the army, one has rank over the other. And in the work of redemption, the Son is subordinate to the Father. Yet as beings, as God, they are equal. They are the same. And this is what Hodge is saying. So the eternal Son of God may be co-equal with the Father, though officially subordinate. So listen to some of these verses. 1 Corinthians 3.23 You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. 1 Corinthians 11 but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. John 14, where Jesus says, The Father is greater than I. He's not saying that the Father is more God than the Son. That's impossible. Because God is one. But he's saying, in the work of salvation, the Son of God subordinates himself to the Father. And when all is complete, He turns that over to the Father. So, as Paul says in Romans 11, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. He's talking about God. To Him. So Zechariah says, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord, and His name will be called the Holy One. And so the work of redemption is broader than simply the saving of people's souls. The save, it, it, it's broader than me getting into heaven or a million other people getting saved on the cross. Jesus has come to do more than that. He has come to subdue not only the enemy inside here, but He has come to take the whole cosmos that is fallen and in rebellion and that is full of demonic powers and principalities and He has come to bring them to heal. He has come to restore heaven and earth and make a new heavens and a new earth. See, it's broader, isn't it? That's why the songs that we sing have to reflect the breadth of God's full redemption and not just, not just one aspect of it. So as one person has said, the work of redemption is broader than the saving of souls. 
of God's people. The entire universe will be completely restored that God may be all in all. This is what Jesus is doing. He's going beyond simply individuals like you and I, which is very important, and that's why we're here tonight. But his campaign goes beyond to all the whole universe. And I looked and beheld a new heavens and a new earth in the book of Revelation. That's what Jesus is doing. And that's what happened when that tomb opened. That's what he set in motion. He is now reigning and ruling until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy being death. And when that end comes, he will turn and give everything over to the Father that God might be all in all. And so we should think about how this truth should motivate us as we live. Motivate us as we think about culture. Think about work. He's come to redeem work, hasn't he? He's, when we go to work on, on Monday morning, he says, you know, he's, he's come to redeem that. Art, politics, music. As Abram Kuyper said, that there's not one area of life where Jesus does not say, that is mine. He is the Lord of culture. He's the Lord of science. He's the Lord of literature. He's the Lord of all of these things. That's why Johann Sebastian Bach always concluded his pieces of work with sola dea gloria, even his secular works. Because he saw that he was God's plan of redemption was broader than simply sa saving souls. And I, I don't mean to sa say simply saving souls as if that were something small. But it's broader and more glorious. And that's what Paul is inviting us into seeing here. And that we are part of that tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would continue with us in the remainder of this night. And to rejoice, O oh God, as we reflect upon the, the sovereign reign of Jesus over all things in this world. Lord, may it divest us of any fear that we have. Fear of, of uh, the enemies of this world. Uh, even death itself, Father, we thank you that Jesus has come to take the sting out of death so that death becomes a great doorway into your presence and that death itself is mocked in the Bible where its power and sting has been taken away. Father, we pray that we would live with resurrection power in our lives, that we would live with confidence that Jesus is reigning and ruling. And we pray, O oh Father, that we would see that reign and rule uh, expressed in the hearts of our people, the hearts of our loved ones, and even our hearts here tonight, Lord, as we go back out into the world, and that as we live to your honor and glory, and that we are willing, Lord, to accept all the, 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 the good things and all the things that we may not invite into our lives, that, but yet we know are part of your sovereign plan. So be near to us now and Bless us as we sing our parting song of praise in Jesus' name. Amen.